Now, I know this is actually not something everybody's into. I, I know this can be a niche thing, but I am actually somebody who enjoys a little practical joke from time to time. <laughs> I really do. I, as long as it's relatively harmless, I am all about pranking. I'm all about it. I remember last year when Solon, our worship pastor, just started one of the first orders of business for us. His first week on the job, I made sure we went ahead and teepeed another staff person's office. That was one of our first projects with him on staff. It was very critical. So uh, I've been teepeed before. I've had my car saran wrapped. My office has been hit here in the church. I'm all about it. We actually had a fun one earlier this year. I had a warranty repair on my car, so the repair place gave me a complimentary rental to have for a while. And the rental ended up being a Tesla. I got a Tesla for my rental, which was kind of fun. Never drove it before, and I got the whole EV car experience. Now, I didn't waste this opportunity, though. It was not enough just to have this nice, swanky car for a minute. It was that Monday that we were all in the office and Brandon Freda, one of our pastors on staff, was not there. And so I told the staff, I said, guys, we're going to tell Brandon Freda that somebody in this church gave me this car for free as a gift. And if you don't go along with this, you're fired because I'm your boss. You have to do what I tell you to do. So he shows up the next day and he's like, who's got the Tesla in the parking lot? And I was like, dude, you are not going to believe this. I did this wedding yesterday and the couple's like, we just want to appreciate you. Here's a car. And he's like, what in the world? And I'm like, you want to drive? I'm letting him drive it around the parking lot and give him the whole experience. He's like, I cannot believe somebody gave you a car. And I'm like, it's just the blessing of God, I guess. I don't know how else to explain it. I just, you know, it's the anointing. So here's the thing though. Um, the minute you enter into the prank game, the minute you prank somebody, you have done something risky because you have opened the door to have the favor returned to you. And not just that though, pranks usually aren't very equal. They escalate very, very quickly. They go from fun to just downright cruel and unusual very quickly. There's actually um, some twins. Their names are uh, Alex and Alan Stokes. They're social media influencers. And they got trapped in the escalation game when it came to their pranks. And so what they did was they took some duffel bags and threw their own money inside of them, dressed up in all black, put ski masks on, and pretended to rob a bank. This is what these guys did. They called an Uber and they're trying to get in. They're like, you got to let us get away. And the guy's freaking out. He has no idea what's going on. So he's like, you are not getting in my car. People are freaking out, calling the cops. And before they know it, the cops are showing up, holding people at gunpoint. Everybody's freaking out. And these two guys got charged with a felony for this prank. That's just too far. Okay. That is not fun. That, that is not a fun prank. That escalated way too quickly. Now, pranks are one thing, but the whole like payback revenge, even escalation dynamic plays out in our lives all the time. This happens to us constantly. If you have ever been in some type of serious relationship or been married or anything like that, you know exactly what this is like. Because you just have a moment during the day where you just have like a little tiff about like the dishes or something, something very simple. And before you know it, you are fighting over what somebody said at Thanksgiving last year, what happened seven years ago. You're starting to fantasize about putting a pillow over their face that night. You, like, things escalate very quickly. You're like, how did it even end up going here? It goes very, very fast. I had an experience a little while ago. I had a wedding to get to. And I was actually running a little late. 
Now, if there's one thing you don't really want to be late to, it's a wedding. You do not want to be late to the wedding. So I'm kind of feeling the urgency. I get stuck behind a car. We're both trying to take a right turn out onto a busy road. Well, this road had one of those right turn merge lanes where you get in and you can get the speed up and then get in. Well, this guy wasn't jumping into this lane. And so I sat there for a minute. I'm like, maybe he's trying to figure things out. And nothing's happening. So I, in the most Christianly, pastorly way you possibly could, just did a little beep, beep, so gentle, like as light as you possibly could. And I look at his rear mirror and I could see him do the, what do you want me to do look? You know, he's just flailing his arms around in frustration. So I was like, well, that's interesting. Well, the cars start piling up behind me and I don't want them thinking I'm complicit in this guy delaying the whole line. So I'm like, this ain't me. So I gave this guy another minute and then finally I'm like, we are never getting out on this road. I'm gonna be late to this wedding. So I did a little bit, a little stronger, but not too crazy, still Christianly. Beep, beep, we gotta get going, dude, okay? Well, before I know it, this guy's opening his door and starting to march towards my car like something's about to go down. Now, 10 years ago, I would have been like, oh, cool, we're just gonna talk this out and figure it out. But it is 2023 now, everybody. My first thought is, what kind of weapons of mass destruction are in this guy's car? What does he have in his back pocket? I'm freaking out. And the whole thing radically escalated. Now, the story ended somewhat happy. You know, nobody died. We all left with all of our limbs. But when he finally pulled away and we got moving again, I just thought, wow, that escalated very quickly. Like that got out, out of hand <laughs> very fast. And this is just the reality. We live in a world of payback. We live in a world that escalates. It doesn't matter if it's just a feud with somebody in your family, some exchange with somebody from work, or even nations escalating conflicts. We just live in a culture of revenge and payback. And so today... We're going to finish up a series we've been in the last couple weeks that we've been calling Dangerous Ideas. If you are just catching up with us on this series, we've been talking about how the Christian faith has actually introduced some radically countercultural ideas to our culture. And actually, these ideas have benefited our society in so many ways. But we're actually at risk right now of losing some of these critical ideas that have shaped the fabric of our country and our world. And actually, the greatest hope we have to keep experiencing these benefits is for Christians to take it upon themselves to live these ideas out in sacrificial and compelling ways. That's our greatest hope. And I want to talk today about some ideas that Jesus himself introduced. I actually think this might be the most misunderstood idea that Jesus ever talked about. I think this is one that Christians get wrong so many times, and sometimes we've just heard about it in the wrong way. So we're going to have some fun with this. I've benefited from so many different pastors and scholars from this, but i got to thank Rich Velotis. He gave me some great help this week in getting this figured out. But Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. I'm willing to bet there's a large number of people in this room where you've heard this on some level before. I mean, it's even part of our vernacular. We say, turn the other cheek, don't we? And yet, 
I think this passage is one of the most misunderstood in the entire Bible. So today, we're hitting the whole reset button. Whatever you think this might mean, we're just going to go right back to the ground floor and build this thing back up. And I think everybody's going to learn something new today. We're going to have some fun with this. So Jesus is referencing an Old Testament passage that everybody would have recognized at this moment when he brought it up. It's in Leviticus 24, and it says this, anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. So first read, we think, awesome. That's my green light for payback right there, right? You punch me, I punch you back. Even Stephen, we make this whole thing equal, right? That's how we read it. But actually, this command was not meant to encourage retribution. It was designed to prevent uncontrolled vengeance. It was actually meant to stop escalation. Because all of us know that experience where you fall in the downward spiral of trying to hurt the person more than you've hurt them. And so what this command is trying to do is actually establish an equal and fair system of justice. That's what's happening. And what Jesus is doing is he is not negating this command at all. He's not saying, hey, you know that thing in the Old Testament? Don't even worry about it anymore. He's not doing that. He's actually deepening this command. He is moving from external laws to internal behaviors. And he is dealing with the heart of the matter when it comes to this topic. And Jesus right here is actually speaking against the two most common ways we respond to any type of confrontation or poor treatment or disrespect, whatever it is. He's speaking against these two common ways. And you'll know these immediately. You probably prefer one of these over the other. So the first thing Jesus is saying that this is not the two ways of our world. The first thing is passivity. Now, this is what's interesting about this one. This is how most people read what Jesus is talking about. Turn the other cheek, right? So they smack you, just take another hit. You be a doormat for Jesus. That's what you're called to do, right? That's what probably a lot of us have thought that's meant. Just take one for the team. Now here's the problem with that approach though. Passivity actually enables sin and evil. You see, if you don't treat something like a problem, it is going to continue and people will exploit it. I don't know if anybody's seen these videos on social media, but you'll see these clips of people just running into stores and cleaning them out, putting stuff in bags and just walking out, not even worried about a single thing. Some of the times they're just strolling in, just doing it. And a lot of those clips are actually happening in California because there's a law there to where you can steal up to $950 of merchandise and it will only be a misdemeanor. You're not going to jail. So... Why not do it? And these store owners, they got to be totally passive about it. They cannot confront these people because they'll get in more trouble than the robbers will. Now, there's actually a website that does some satire, and they actually posted this news article recently that says this, store owner prices all items at $951. So these can be prosecuted. So you get your $951 Hershey's bar right there. But this is just the reality. Reality. People with less than good intentions will exploit passivity as much as they are able. And so that is not actually the call of a Christian. The next thing, though, is the whole other side of the spectrum. And maybe this is more you. Retaliation. Now, this is what we think that Old Testament passage says. Yeah, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. I'm going to punch back. If you try to take me, I'm going to respond. 
Here's the problem with retaliation, though. See, if passivity enables, retaliation almost always escalates. And I see this pretty much every single day in my house. You see, my son Easton, well, for whatever reason, just has these moments where he's like, you know what? It's time to instigate something in this house. It's just a little too calm here. And so he'll go and just poke his sister or take her toy or just try to get a little something to get on her nerves. Now, the problem is just because Brindley is younger, he doesn't actually know who he's messing with. He has not learned his lesson yet because my daughter knows how to punch back. She's the ultimate retaliator. And so she'll come back and smack him as hard as she possibly can his back. And you can hear the smack reverberate through the house. I mean, it echoes. It's so loud. And in that moment, they have officially stepped into World War III. This is how this goes. And so East will be chasing her around with just blood in his eyes. She is screaming for her life. And I'm standing there wondering where I have failed as a parent. It's retaliation. It pretty much always escalates. Because if someone hurts us, we usually don't just respond. We want to put them into submission. That's how we want to do it. So Jesus is saying it's not passivity. It's not retaliation. There's two things that he is trying to say here that lead to the one big thing that this whole sermon and Jesus teaching is about. So let me do the two setups real quick. What Jesus is saying here is first, do not ignore the evil you're confronted with. So Christians should actually be more sensitive to the ills of our society than anyone else. We should care about righting wrongs more than any other group of people. And Christians are not called to be passive actors in the world. We're supposed to engage and bring about God's very purposes here. So you don't ignore it. But Jesus is also saying, do not become the evil you are confronted with. There's a passage in the New Testament in Romans 12 that says this, do not be overcome by evil. And it's talking about this temptation we all have to actually be overtaken by the treatment we're receiving and return it in the same way. There's a, a man named Dallas Willard who actually passed away in the last couple of years. And he's been considered one of the great thinkers of the last century. He was a philosophy professor at USC. He's this prolific author, considered one of the great minds in the academic world and was actually also Christian. What well, was towards the end of his career to where in one of his classes, a student just got up and started reaming this guy in front of all the other students, just making all these accusations and all these attacks and just being all sorts of insane. And to everybody's shock, Dallas Willard didn't respond at all. He didn't say a word. And this student eventually just storms out of the room. And after the class, some students couldn't help but ask. They said, uh, Professor, why didn't you say anything? You could have verbally murdered this kid if you wanted to. And Dallas Willard said, I'm practicing the spiritual discipline of not having the last word. Dallas knew something. He knew if I respond to this student in the same way they're treating me, I still lose. I am being overcome by the very evil that I am being confronted with. So if it's not ignoring and it's not becoming, what is Jesus challenging us to do? How do we respond to the sinful treatment that we receive all the time? Jesus is saying here, and this is what we're going to unpack, 
we have a call and a responsibility, if you're a follower of Jesus, to practice the third way. And what is this third way? It is creative and compassionate confrontation. It's not passive. It's not weak. It's not vengeful or retaliatory or hateful. Jesus is saying, when you are confronted with evil of any sort, any type of degrading treatment, you have an opportunity to respond in a way that graciously exposes the sin and gives the other person an opportunity to change. You can respond in a way that actually creates space for the wrong to not just be confronted, but be corrected. Now, how in the world do you do that? What, what does that even mean? What does that look like just in real life? Well, this is why Jesus unpacks this principle with three different illustrations, because he really wants to help us understand it. And this is why most people misunderstand it. This particular teaching has so much cultural context to it. Sometimes you have to appreciate the moment in time that people are coming from when they're using these illustrations because Jesus is speaking to first century real life in this moment. So let's make sure we understand what he's talking about. Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, I actually need a volunteer for this moment in the service. And actually, it kind of has to be a guy because if somebody clips this wrong on the internet, I'm going to get in all sorts of trouble. So I need a dude for like one minute. Can a dude help me out real quick? Can I get a guy? Is that G or Nico? G? G, come on up here, man. Let me get your help. Can we give him some love real quick? Awesome, dude. It's funny. I was thinking about you possibly coming up when I came. All right, everybody. This is G, one of my guys right here. Can I have you stand right over here, G? You're going to be my thing. Now, G, are you okay with me slapping you for the purposes of this illustration? Are you okay with that? Okay, thank you. You're a tough guy. Okay. So Jesus is talking about getting slapped right now. Now, again, there's important context here. So G, you face me right here. Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek. Now, the reason he's so specific is because there was actually a very specific way you would slap somebody in the first century. And it was not actually about inflicting pain. It was about the public shame it would create. It was a way to absolutely humiliate somebody. And so you would actually take your back hand and get them right across the right cheek right there, real hard. That's how you slap somebody. And the moment you did that, you just communicated to this person, I see you as less than me. It's a dehumanizing act. It's a way to belittle and inflict shame and embarrassment. That's what you're doing. Now, everybody tracks with Jesus. They're like, yep, that's how we do it. We smack people right on the cheek, backhand them. But then he says, if that happens to you, Go ahead and turn the other cheek to him. So turn your other cheek towards me. What, what cheek do we have right now? Left cheek. Now this is an interesting moment. Things just got very dangerous now and very creative because, face me right now, G, I can't really backhand you with my right hand here. And you're like, well, Brian, why wouldn't you just use your left hand? Well, actually, to slap somebody with your left hand at this time was completely unthinkable. You would never do it because your left hand was for unclean stuff. You used it for like the bathroom and everything. You wouldn't even wave to somebody with your left hand. It was so disrespectful. So you would actually not even think to even use your left hand at all. Because if I were to slap you with my left hand in this time, it would actually put me beneath him. 
it would actually be a way to say, I see you as superior to me. So you would definitely not do that. But it's like, well, okay, why don't we just go right hand, full on, right? Full range of motion. Or why don't we just punch? Well, here's what happened. If you open hand slap somebody on the left cheek, you know what you just said? I respect you. I see you as an equal. And so I'm actually putting you on equal ground with me. And so this is what Jesus just did in this moment. He's like, okay, somebody disrespects you and gives you backhand to the face. Go ahead and give him the other one too. Because the moment you're in this position where you're like, uh, not, not, what are we going to do here? You are forced to confront what you were doing to this person. It's like, oh, you want to treat me like trash? Well, why don't you just slap me again? Oh, wait. Because that would force you to give me the dignity that I actually deserve. And in that moment, this person slapping would have to stare their sin right in the face. And it would be a moment where they would have to choose. Am I willing to change? Not passive, not just taking it, not retaliatory. You're not punching back. Very, very creative in a compassionate, gracious way to cause somebody to have to deal with their own problems. Can we give G a hand real quick here? Thank you so much, man. Appreciate you, brother. Now, Jesus knows this is category redefining for people. This is why he does three different examples to help people understand. So he goes in the next one. He says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Now, again, context is so important. At this time, people didn't have closets full of clothes like we do. Can we just be real right now? Some of you guys have an entire shoe store in your closet. You do. You really do. Yeah, you're smiling because it's true. At this time, a typical person would actually only have two main pieces of clothing that they'd wear in a typical day. They'd have a shirt and then a coat they'd put over it. So you'd have, just have two things you were wearing. Now, Jesus is talking about getting sued for your shirt. This wasn't totally unusual, and it would be a way for somebody either to either be greedy or try to take advantage of you. It really would be some poor treatment. It'd be some real disrespect, but it would be within people's imaginations of this happening. But Jesus then says something very unusual. He says, oh yeah, somebody sues you, they want your shirt? Go ahead and give them your coat too. It's only clothes, right? It's no big deal. Now think about this though. The moment... They took your shirt, and then you just handed them your coat. What are you? But naked. You're naked. And I'm going to need a volunteer for this next illustration. Can I get somebody? <laughs> now, here's where this is kind of interesting. You see, right now in this time, we think, oh, man, to be naked in front of people, that is humiliating. Like, that is shameful for you, right? Now, this might be hard to even understand or appreciate, but at this time, it wasn't actually so much humiliating to be naked yourself. It was humiliating to be the person who looked at somebody else naked. You were actually the one who should be ashamed if you even looked at somebody naked that you weren't supposed to be doing that. So Jesus is like, here's the deal. Somebody's trying to take advantage of you. They're trying to fleece you a little bit for some of your stuff. You know what? It's only closed at the end of the day. Use that as an opportunity for generosity. Go full commando for these people. Just go all the way. But in doing so, you just put this person in a very awkward, uncomfortable position. 
Because not only are they the one that is now looking at you naked, they are the one who put you in that position too. And so they are staring in all of its glory in front of you, their own greed, selfishness, and shameful way of treating you. That's very creative. <laughs> That's not something somebody would think of. And again, it's not really passive. It's not retaliation. It is a very unusual, compassionate way to give people an opportunity for reconciliation or restoration. So Jesus has one more example then. He's going to take this all the way home. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, again, we think, okay, so what? We just got to walk another mile, get, get a workout in? Again, context is critical here. At this time, Roman soldiers had a legal right to force any civilian to carry their supplies for them up to a mile. So if you're just walking down the street, they could be like, hey, you, take my bags, do it, and, and you'd have to do it. It was like a legal right. But if they made you take even one more step over a mile, they could actually have charges pressed against them and they could go to jail for that because that would be seen as too much. So Jesus says, he says, okay, you're going to have these times where these soldiers are going to ask you to carry this stuff for a mile. They are treating you like cattle when they do that. That is not a sign of respect. But out of your own choice to preserve your own dignity and as a way to show some genuine, compassionate generosity, go ahead and give them another mile. Offer to carry their stuff. Keep going. Now, this compassionate moment is not just a nice thing to do. You've just put this soldier in a terrible position because if people misread the situation, they might call the cops on him and he's now getting charges pressed against him even though it wasn't his idea. Not only that, you think, okay, if you're really going to treat me like a piece of meat just to carry your stuff for a mile, why wouldn't you let me go too? Why is that such a problem? Or now is my generosity causing you to have to face your own treatment of me? It's not passive. It's not punching back. It's this radical, creative, compassionate third way that gives people an opportunity to face what's going on in their own hearts. Now, I don't know if you're like me right now. When I hear this teaching from Jesus, I'm like, wow. <laughs> that is great for Jesus to be able to think on his feet that quick. <laughs> but I'm not that smart. And when I'm in these situations when people are showing me all sorts of disrespect, I don't know what to do. So usually I just want to punch or something or just deal with it. I don't know what to do. So what does this even look like in real life? How has this really worked out in the real world? Well, there is actually one example that I think is one of the best we've seen in recent history. And it was so powerful and profound that it actually changed our entire world forever because somebody chose to live out these teachings and principles. You're going to recognize the story as I start to unpack it. It was in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955 where there was segregated bus seating. And the way it worked was there was a white section and a colored section. And if they ran out of seats for the white people, they would push the white seating back so they would get more. And that would often cause African-Americans to have to either move back or get off the bus entirely to make space. Well, it was December 1st of that same year where a woman got on the bus. 
she paid her fare and she sat in the colored section. But the bus filled up and the driver did what he usually did. He went back and he moved the white seating back. So that put this woman and three other people in a position where they had to get up and move back or get off the bus to make space for the whites. Well, three of those four people did get up and they just made the move. They didn't want any trouble. And honestly, after a long day of work and given the dynamics of the culture at that point, I don't even blame them for the passive response. You know, you just don't even want to deal with any of the headaches, I'm sure. But there was one woman who had a third way moment. And we all know her name. What is her name? It's Rosa Parks. She did something very dangerous. She didn't just passively take it and move out of the way, but she also didn't retaliate and throw fists. She just stayed in her seat. But this was a very dangerous move because she forced that bus driver and all the white people on that bus to stare their racism right in the face. And actually, the bus driver did not change his heart in this moment. He had Rosa Parks arrested. She went to jail for her refusal to move. But here's the thing about the third way. It is very powerful. And this third way moment ignited a third way movement. Because shortly after Rosa Parks was arrested, this led to a boycott movement of the entire bus transportation industry in Montgomery, Alabama. It was unconventional, it was unexpected, but it was also downright dangerous because for 381 days, the entire African-American community representing 75% of all bus riders did not get on a single bus. They were totally empty. Nobody rode a single bus. They carpooled, they took taxis. Some people even walked 10 to 20 miles to avoid riding a bus. But these actions brought the entire bus industry to its knees. And it was through a U.S. Supreme Court ruling that guaranteed the full integration of the entire bus system across Montgomery and then also helped ignite and fuel a movement that would lead to the full integration of our society. And actually, this is a picture of the first desegregated bus right there. And you might recognize that young man in the bottom left that would go on to change the world forever. So Rosa Parks and all these people committed this cause they weren't passive. They didn't just take it. But they also didn't retaliate. They didn't start lighting buses on fire and vandalizing and getting violent. They just stopped riding the buses. They were creative. They were very compassionate the way they did it. And they forced our entire nation to stare its racism and sin right in the face. Now you hear that example, it's like, okay, Brian, that's Rosa Parks, okay? That is a world-changing moment, okay? Everybody knows her name. What does this mean on Tuesday when I just want to scream at my spouse? What does it mean when that person gives me the finger when I'm driving my car and I just want to start chasing them down the freeway? You know, how do I respond just in the daily experiences I have? So let's make this practical now. What does this look like just on the day-to-day -day basis when we experience those offenses and those hurts and we want to retaliate or maybe just brush it away? First thing we see that Jesus is saying is you have to refuse to retaliate. You see, we misunderstand this. 
we so often think that retaliation is an expression of strength. You know, I'm going to make sure we're equal. And actually, I'm going to punch this a little harder to make sure you know who's superior in this situation. But actually, there is more power in grace than retaliation. It is a superior force in your arsenal to wage war in this world. I had a painful experience of this just in the last couple of days. I uh, got home from just a long day of work and you had all these appointments and I had some late night commitments. So I was just getting home late and I was just, I was fried. And so I just wanted to give the kids a kiss, eat some food and then go to bed. That was the plan for the night. Well, once I got home, I was greeted by one of my children. Now, not my son or my daughter, actually my first child, Nicole's and I's fur baby, Bentley. Okay, that was our first kid. Now, Bentley gave me that look right when she ran out the door and saw me. She gave me that look like, I know you've been busy all day, but I've been sitting in this house, so now you're going to entertain me for a little while, okay? So we're going to play. Let's have some fun. And again, I was just tired. So Nicole and the kids are coming out, and there's Bentley going all crazy, and I just had a moment. I was like, oh, I do not want to deal with this dog because you need context. Bentley is a very good dog, except there's one thing we have not been able to teach her. She does not drop toys. Like not even close. You can tell it in 50 different languages and she doesn't know the word drop. You can pick her up by a toy and she'll hang there like a fish on a hook. She doesn't let go. I am the only person on planet earth that knows how to get toys out of this dog's jaws of life mouth. So it always falls on me usually to play with this dog. So I'm like, I don't want to play with the dog. I've had a long day. I don't care. I don't even want to deal with the dog. This is why I don't want another dog. So I just had a little bit of a pastorly moment there. And... Nicole had a perfect opportunity right there to be like, nobody asked you. And why are you in such a mood? You know what? Don't even come home if you're going to act like this Pastor Brian Bigger. You know, she could have done that all day and she would have been perfectly justified in punching back on it. But my wife had a third way moment right there. As I was fuming about not wanting to go play fetch with this dog, she in the most loving, gracious way said, babe, it's all good. I got this. Don't you worry about a thing. Go get some food. Chill out. We're going to take care of Bentley. In that moment, I was like, well, dang it. We're supposed to be fighting right now. Now I feel stupid. And that's the weird thing about grace. It totally disarms you. You know, you're like, okay, what do I even do now with this sword in my hand? I can't swing it at you. And it's weird though, there is a power to it because in that moment, I felt like I was looking my sin in my face. I was like, oh, I have the problem. <laughs> and not even, Nicole wasn't even just showing me grace. Even my dog forgave me. She was just wagging her tail and being all nice and stuff. I was like, geez, come on, dog. And so it feels awkward because you want to bring some retaliation. But this is dangerous because Jesus is saying, do not do it. Don't give in to those temptations to fight back, to scream back, to do that thing. You have an opportunity for compassionate confrontation. And so that next time that person just blows up on you, maybe it's a family member or whatever, you can pause and be like, hold up. What would a third way response look like here? Or maybe you're offended and you just want to return the favor. You got a zinger just ready. And you can just ask, well, hold on. What would a compassionate response look like in this moment. Next time you feel like maybe you're getting the short end of a situation, instead of trying to get what's yours, you're like, you know what? Do I have an opportunity for generosity here? Can I show some, some grace? Maybe you want to explode on your kids. And you're like, well, what would compassionate discipline look like in this moment? As you seek 
to refuse retaliation and bring genuine compassion, the creativity will take care of itself. Because a lot of us are like, well, how do I do this? It's so confusing. That's not where you start. You don't think, what's the creative way to get them? No, you think, how do I show compassion? And it will be so unusual and unexpected, it will be creative. And it will confront the heart. So you got to refuse retaliation, but you got to do the next thing too. Jesus is saying you must defeat evil with good. I read this verse earlier in the message, Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil. There's a second half to that verse though that I didn't mention. But overcome evil with good. Now, just recently, I went to see this uh, Mission Impossible movie that's out. Maybe some of you guys have seen it too. And if you're judging me for that right now, the only other option was the Barbie movie. Okay, so it was either that or Barbie. So went to see Mission Impossible. And I'm not going to give any spoilers away, but we know how these movies work, right? We always know the good guys are going to win. The bad guys are going to lose. We know Tom Cruise is not going to die. It's going to work out in the end. But this is what was interesting to me watching all two hours and 43 minutes of this movie. Tom Cruise had so many opportunities to cut corners as he was going on this mission. He could have killed a few more bad guys than he needed to, especially when they're in their most vulnerable moments. He could have allowed civilians to be collateral damage of what he was doing. He could have easily made his life easier by taking advantage of other people. But like every single other Mission Impossible movie, Tom Cruise, his tactics are always unconventional. They're unexpected. But his morals are always perfectly sound. And he always ultimately triumphs. Now, the reason a movie like this resonates with us, and it will probably make a billion dollars or whatever, is because the format of the movie actually fits pretty well with how God has actually set things up to work in this world. You see, there is a moral order to this universe. And evil does do a lot of damage. There's relational, financial, even literal casualties because of how people behave in this world. But God set things up so that fighting fire with fire doesn't work. He designed it to work that way. It is the genuinely good and truthful and pure responses and actions that actually are a fire hose to the raging fires in our world. And so when we're confronted with any type of, again, disrespect or sinful behavior or poor treatment, the challenge we have is how do I pour water on this fire? How do I douse this out with a good response, with good intentions, with a good tone? Because Jesus says, this is what will actually defeat evil in the world. Good is always more powerful than evil, but you have to commit to responding to it in that way. So, good is your weapon against evil. But there's one last little piece to this. We must leave room for God to work. I'm going to go back to Romans 12. It says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. There is an unfortunate dynamic to the way our world operates. And as much as we said good defeats evil, there's something we just have to deal with. Anytime something unfair or painful happens in our lives, 
there's almost always a gap between the event and the justice. There's that, that gap, that, that space. And it's in that space when people start to ask the hard questions. They say things like, okay, well, if there really is a good God, why isn't he handling this? You know, if God is so fair and loving, why are so many horrible things happening? Why isn't this getting fixed? Creates all of those hard questions. Now we have to acknowledge, bad things happen to good people. Horrible things happen to people who do not deserve it. And we have no promise in the Bible that God is going to right every wrong within five minutes of the event or five days or five years or even five lifetimes. There's actually not even a promise that God will fix all of it on this side of eternity. But there is a guarantee that God makes. Not just that good will triumph, but God will too. God says, I will repay. I am going to right every single wrong that has ever occurred in human history, but I'm going to do it in my time and in my way. And so God is saying, you got to leave some room for me to work. And this is what grace does. Grace actually creates space. You see, it creates space for God to work in the situation for God to take care of it. And some of us in here today, that should set you free because God is not expecting you to squeeze every ounce of justice out of that situation. He's not expecting you to fix that person and put it all back together. He's not expecting you to clean up every single mess that has happened in your life. Some of you in here, you gotta take your hands off. And you got to say, all right, I'm going to leave some space here. I'm going to let God do his thing because he is the perfect judge. And he's going to do it at the right time in the right way. But I got to get out of his way to work. Some of you need to just take that off your plate today and leave here a little lighter because you are carrying the weight of justice that God doesn't want you to carry. Now, if you choose to truly live in this third way, if you make this part of your lifestyle, it's going to be very dangerous. You're still going to get hurt. That person's not always going to change, even when you respond in just the right way. It's not all going to feel clean and tidy. But the reason why you can live in this way with confidence and trust is because somebody already did it for you. You see, Jesus was put in the most unjust and unfair position. He was wrongfully condemned to death by crucifixion. And if there was anybody who could have brought about the perfect amount of retaliation and then some, it was Jesus. He could have vaporized every person that was having him crucified. But look what Peter says about Jesus' response to his poor treatment. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
we were the ones who sinned against Jesus. We were the ones who put him on that cross. But out of his own grace, Jesus took the justice we deserve so we could have the grace that he earned. Aren't you so glad you have a God who doesn't treat you the way you deserve? Aren't you so glad you have a God that didn't retaliate on you? Because Jesus lived out the ultimate third way. He gave us space, not even just for grace, but for salvation. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, he says, our behavior must not be determined by the way others treat us, but by the treatment we receive from Jesus. He's our standard. And we have a call, if you are a follower of Jesus, to live in this world in a dangerously different way, to bring grace and compassion even to the most painful situations we face, because we know that's where the power is. That's what's truly gonna transform things. And so as we live with this same heart, church, as we step out in faith, trusting God for this, I'm telling you, let's live dangerously. Because as you live this out, it won't just change your life, it will start to transform the world around you. Will you all pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for your grace and compassion in our lives. Jesus, we are so glad you did not retaliate on us. And Jesus, you trusted even in the perfect justice of God and that he even raised you from the dead. Now you are ruling and reigning, Lord. And we thank you so much for the hope we have in you. And I pray now, Lord, that you would help us live these ideas out, that you would give us the confidence to not respond in the ways of the world, in the ways we're tempted to respond, but you would give us the strength to truly live with this creative, compassionate confrontation in a way that really helps people experience your love in the moment they're confronted with their own sin. God, give us this heart, help us love people this much that we can live in this way in all of our encounters, Lord. And I pray it would change our families. I pray it would change our workplaces. I pray it would transform our schools and this world, Lord, as your people go out and live in this way, God. So help us be a dangerous church, Lord. Help us live these ideas out. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. If you would like to learn more about Northern Hills, you can go to nhills.org. You can also follow us online on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram for more updates and events. We look forward to seeing you next week.